another Apollo Papyrus episode. I am Aaron Apollo Camp. The interview guest for this episode is a former Silicon Valley technology company executive who has written two tech fiction novels with a third in the works. His name is Mike Trigg, and here's my interview with Mike. Mike Trigg, welcome to Apollo Papyrus. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Feel free to introduce yourself to our listeners. Well, yeah, happy to do so. Uh, my name's Mike Trigg. I'm a resident of the San Francisco Bay Area. I was in the tech industry for over 20 years uh, doing venture-based uh, technology startups as a founder, as an uh, executive, early employee, et cetera. And um, at, over the last few years, made a pivot in my career, quite honestly, to becoming a full-time author. Uh, it's been incredibly gratifying. It's something that I always wanted to do, um, but never quite found the time to do it, trying to write my novels on nights and weekends. And uh, I would confess that COVID, uh, silver lining of COVID for me was uh, the startup I was working on ended up not getting additional funding and we wound it down. And I thought, hey, I'm already at home <laughs> without a paycheck. Uh, I'm halfway to being an author already, so I might as well jump in and and really go for it. And so my first novel, uh, which was titled Bitflip, came out in August of 22. And then my second novel, uh, Burner, uh, comes out in April. So uh, I'm uh, this is this is my job now. I'll start with Bitflip as I, as I have a few questions about. Uh, that book, without spoiling too much a bit, Flip, what is the book about? Well, I followed the old adage of write what you know uh, with BitFlip, and what I knew was my career in technology. So um, the story is about a executive at a venture-backed technology company who basically sort of inadvertently discovers potential fraud within the company. And um, the story unfolds from there, basically of a question of what is he going to do about that? You know, how and he sort of goes through various permutations and combinations of how he's going to handle it. Um, but the story really, for me, was a chance to kind of convey and, you know, offer a cultural critique of some of the uh, downsides of Silicon Valley, downsides of the tech industry, um, and the kind of behaviors that the, this industry in this area can can foster. Um, so it was a lot of fun to write. Um, it's not autobiographical. There's nobody in the book who I worked with. And I'm always quick to point out that I, I really enjoyed all the people I work with and never worked at a company that had any fraud. Uh, but th this is a very topical subject for people. You know, you see what's happened with, you know, notable examples like Theranos and FTX, you know, companies that had you know, rampant fraud and were multi-billion dollar Ponzi schemes, basically. And and um, so, you know, this story has gotten a lot of interest, I think, because of that timeliness. You mentioned a couple of the, the bigger, uh, more high profile tech scandals, but were there any real life tech industry scandals that inspired your book? You know, uh, many of them. I actually did a blog post I, I on my website miketrig.com i i you know do various articles and opinion pieces and one of the articles that has been by far my most read article was that i think i titled it the top 10 uh tech frauds of 2022 and and um 
there's there are several in there um, that I derive some inspiration from, I guess you might say. Um, but you know, I think one of the biggest things that I saw in my career, you know, as I said, I didn't firsthand ever, ever remotely witness anything close to criminal conduct. But I think anybody who's in the tech industry, especially uh, venture funded companies, can kind of attest to some of the structural challenges of that uh, that that creates and some of those sort of inherent conflicts of interest that it creates. You know, the venture investors are deeply, deeply, deeply invested, as they should be, in the success of the company, but that can lead to sort of oversights and omissions at times and, you know, wanting to believe things to be true that may not be. Um, you know, there's a term in the Valley to fake it till you make it, which essentially means, you know, tell the story in its full glory and and gloss over sort of the present underwhelming reality. And, um, you know, I think some founders take that too far. And in a culture where, uh, you know, this is diminished a little bit, obviously, with the current sort of financial situation isn't quite as boom, boom as it was when I wrote the book. But, um, you know, I think some sometimes when the money is coming freely, and uh, as long as you tell a good story, um, some founders can sort of lose their moral compass and, um, you know, get get uh, let their let their fiction kind of become their reality. And before they even know it, they're sort of in fraudulent, fraudulent territory. So, you know, that was kind of what I wanted to depict was how the situation and the structure can sometimes be stronger than the individual. Now, how long did it take you to write BitFlip? That's always, you know, that's a common question. And it's one that I actually struggle to answer uh, with any of my books. Um, it's sort of my quip is that it depends what you mean by write. Um, you know, the the writing itself in terms of a first draft um, actually comes quite, uh, you know, I want to say easily to me, but, you know, comfortably to me. Um as with my second book and my third book, which I'm working on now, um, I never quite have, you know, what is conventionally called a writer's block. Um, I frequently, however, have editor's block. Um, once I write a book, I personally find that middle journey of refining it and editing it and taking out long superfluous sections that don't add to the plot. That for me is the hardest part because you know, those are the pieces I, I, you know, when you write it, everything seems great to you as the author. Um, and so it's hard to sometimes edit one's own work. And I've been fortunate enough to uh, partner with some wonderful uh, developmental editors on, you know, just that sort of thing to get that set of, you know, that, that differing opinion, that fresh set of eyes um, that is really helpful to me. The other thing I've found as a writer to be really helpful you know, the first book, I was sort of timid about sharing early drafts and things like that. And as I've progressed in my writing career, I've become much more comfortable and really fully embraced um, beta readers. And, uh, you know, as I've shared it with people, some people never bothered to read it. Other people um, provided me detailed, you know, line item comments. And uh, I've sort of got a cadre of, of you know, half dozen people who I really trust, who are quick readers and astute readers and that's really helpful for me as well. But, you know, to get back to your question with BitFlip, I was working full time starting a, a company. And so um, finding time to write that novel 
uh, during, you know, nights and weekends, as they say, was difficult. I'd done about a hundred pages that had taken me, you know, over a year. Um, but then once I sort of, uh, settled into it full time, I got a first draft done pretty quickly, probably three, four months after that. Um, and then, you know, went through the process every writer goes through of, you know, pitching it to agents, pitch, submitting it to publishers, et cetera. Um, you know, going through the editing process. Um, so it was probably, you know, elapsed time, probably three years, but from sort of concept to, to, uh, completion. And then of course, there's another sort of six months from completion to, um, the novel seeing, seeing the light of day. I mean, my second novel burner is completely done. It's been completely done for uh, a couple months now, but it won't come out until April. So there's that, the, the publishing industry, that's probably been the biggest adjustment between the tech industry and the publishing industry. Publishing industry moves much, much more slowly for, for understandable reasons. You know, it takes a while to read a book. It doesn't take that long to use an app or, or, or listen to a song or whatever, but, um, you know, it can be a little frustrating as an author sometimes when you want it to go faster. In April, your second novel, Burner, is slated to be released. Without spoiling too much of that book, what will it be about? Yeah, so that I, I, probably the easiest way to explain that is to say where the inspiration for it came from, which was the January 6th Capitol riots. Um, you know, I, I think like uh, many Americans, hopefully of both parties, you know, I, I think we sort of looked at that as with a little bit of shock. Um, and I have always been very interested, not only in technology, but in politics. I actually worked on Capitol Hill um, in the 90s uh, during an interesting time uh, on Capitol Hill. That was when some of the first real threats on the federal government were manifesting themselves. You know, that was the time of the Unabomber. That was the time of the Oklahoma City bombings. That was the time of the anthrax mailings to Capitol Hill. Um, and, you know, we've sort of only seen those, those trends get worse in many ways. Um, and so this topic of sort of political extremism has always been of interest to me. Um, the story I crafted is a dual narration between, uh, two main protagonists, uh, Shane, who is the leader of an online anonymous leader of an online populist movement that sort of spirals out of his control and he is arrested in the opening scene for uh, and convicted of, or con, um, accused of domestic terrorism. Uh, and then the other first person narrative is from Chloe, uh, a character named Chloe, who is the uh, progressive daughter and philanthropic daughter of a tech billionaire uh, in San Francisco, who is abducted by the followers of Shane's movement. Uh, and what nobody knows is that they are actually secretly a couple. So the core, you know, conflict and dilemma that they find themselves in is, you know, Shane has essentially through his actions jeopardized the woman he loves. And, um, you know, it, it becomes sort of an adventure of what are each of them going to do to disentangle themselves from the, the problems that they've created for themselves. So, um, you know, just as the first book was a commentary, cultural commentary on, you know, contemporary Silicon Valley and tech industry, this is really a commentary on, you know, online communities, toxic subcultures, misinformation, disinformation, social media, you know, those kinds of um, 
trends within our, 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 our modern lives. And, you know, that's really what I got into writing for. I, I see my lane as an author, as, you know, borrowing from my experience in my professional career, um, offering, you know, a, a critique of technology's impact on modern life. This question I'm going to ask out of order on the list of questions I have, because uh, this kind of goes with the theme of your second book, but it's about uh, real life current events. Uh, on the day this uh, interview is being recorded, the uh, New Hampshire uh, presidential primaries are, are taking place. And on the Democratic side, you have uh, uh, basically a glorified straw poll because there's no delegates at stake on the Democratic side because the Democratic National Committee wants South Carolina to be uh, first in the nation. But uh, New Hampshire scheduled their primary before South Carolina's. So you have an odd situation where Joe Biden is running for re-election for president, but is not on the New Hampshire ballot in the primary. And there's been a fake robocall, likely with an AI-generated voice, uh, ask, uh, basically insinuating that uh, people who vote in the primaries can't vote in the general election, which is not true. So how do you believe that uh, artificial intelligence will have an impact on society, both the uh, positive and negative in the coming years? Um, yeah, it's a great question. And it's something that I worry about a lot. I've, I've written about this on, on my site, sort of the impact of AI. Um, you know, as long as there's been media of any form, you know, back to the printing press, radio, television, internet and and now social media ai etc you know those technologies have been used to spread information and they've been spread to use disinformation used to spread disinformation and propaganda um and i think that we certainly saw in the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections in particular a willingness and ability by adversaries of the us as well as you know, I'd say sort of extreme um, ex extremists within the United States, leveraging those technologies to try and manipulate the electorate, manipulate the outcome of the election. Um, so it's it's deeply concerning. Um, I know I do know that um, this is also a topic that has you know a high awareness within federal law enforcement. Um, I do think that there's a, uh, you know, unfortunately through the experiences of the last several years an awareness of how um, deep some of these kind of rabbit holes can go. Um, and, but AI sort of as a core technology is really, really good at accelerating human um you know, behaviors and actions, right? It can replicate voice it, and, and doing so in ways that wasn't easy to do previously. It can replicate voices. It can, um, you know, forge images and, and full videos um, in ways that truly sort of trick the human brain. Um, so I, th I think that's very, very concerning. I think we all as citizens and, and um, you know, elect, uh, uh, as um people who will hopefully everyone listening to this will be voting in the election. 
um, need to be vigilant and need to be need to sort of kind of, I think we're entering a little bit of an era where we need to kind of question everything we hear and read. Um, you know, I'm sure like me, you probably get a lot of robocalls and all that sort of stuff already. Um, and that's probably just going to get worse. Now, I don't, I'm not a complete, I'm not a Luddite. I'm not a complete uh, AI pessimist either. I do think there are some incredible, incredible breakthroughs that AI is going to enable. Um, you know, my last few companies that I did in the tech space were all AI focused companies. Um, so I do believe AI has many, many, you know, on the whole will be better for society, better for the world, better for humanity, um, than, than the negatives, but there will be negatives. And, and I think when you see the caution and concern that some of the executives in the AI space have, um, you know, proclaimed in this area, including, you know, letters signed by many AI executives, uh, urging regulation, urging caution and development that was of course promptly ignored and development continues, uh, un unrestrained. But um, that I think shows you that even people who are deeply enmeshed in the development of AI understand its potential downsides. You have a, a third novel that is, I believe, in the early uh, stages of uh, formulation. And without spoiling too much of your third novel, that's the one that'll come out after Burner. What yeah. will it be about? Uh, yeah, it is also... Um large, you know, largely done. Um, I'm in a deep editing process on it, but I've, I've written it uh, and I'm working with an editor on that right as we speak. Um, the premise there, you know, I sort of thought, hey, wouldn't it be interesting if we had no internet and phones, you know, essentially take the world back to the, you know, early 1990s. Um, and so that's the premise in a nutshell. The working title is called Outage, and um, in that book, which is told entirely through the perspective of a woman who's, you know, working from home with her two teenage children in the afternoon, and and the internet goes out and their phones go out, and you know, I I think when if anybody any of us think of that scenario, you know, you ask yourself these rhetorical questions like, how did I get anywhere by car, you know, before GPS, you know, how did I meet a friend in public without uh, being able to, you know, have second by second updates on text, you know, all these things are immediately gone. And what makes the plot thicken is um, the the protagonist, Rachel is her name, comes to discover that her husband, who's a, a lobbyist in DC, again, I'm getting into my political background, but um, might somehow be involved in this outage through one of his clients. So, that becomes kind of the mystery. She, of course, can't reach him. He's not at home. He doesn't come home. Um, and uh, they they have no way of communicating with him. So she has to sort of, she and her children uh, have to sort of piece this mystery together. So it was a really fun novel to write. It's very different. So Burner, you know, I have three first-person narrations. I have a bunch of what I call found objects in the book, you know, text transcripts and media articles and things like that, that augment the, the narration. Um, this one is a very compact, linear, seven-day narration. Um, and, uh, you know, so the pacing is super fast, super tense, uh, a really fun escalation of, um, 
of peril as she goes through this journey. And I understand you've written articles for uh, a number of different publications. And what are some of the publications you've written articles for? Yeah, well, that, that you know, my much of my job in the uh, in my prior life as a tech executive, I frequently was in either sort of a founder executive role or a head of marketing role. So I, I did a fair amount of contributed articles in my professional capacity um, uh, and at, you know, a wide variety of tech publications, uh, TechCrunch, VentureBeat, um, you know, Entrepreneur Magazine, et cetera. Um, I've also done some contributed articles, um, w- you know, that have a little bit more literary focus. Um, so that's been uh, fun to do too. And that's, of course, kind of where I'm leaning my career now, uh, much more so than than the uh, uh, you know the more um, industry focused stuff that I was writing before. I have uh, one final uh, question, and this kind of uh, goes back to uh, uh, your the what inspired you to write Bitflip, and that is Silicon Valley. Why are venture capital based tech startup companies uh, particularly prone to? Uh, corporate malfeasance, and in some cases, outright fraud. Is it like the culture of the Silicon Valley tech business world, or is there more to it? Um, well, at the risk of sort of obviously generalizing, I I, I don't think in most cases, you know, the, the cases, of course, that receive disproportionate media attention, there was intentional fraud, right? I mean, indisputably, um, and some of the ones that we touched on. But in many cases, you know, I, I, I have, and I will say, just like when I worked on Capitol Hill, you know, I have lifelong friends in the tech industry. I have nothing but respect and admiration for the intentions, intellect, ethic, ethical nature of of people in the tech industry. And as I say, I've felt the same way about politics too. Although the bad eggs get a lot of attention, you know most everybody I ever encountered who was an elected f- official uh, in Washington, D.C. was intelligent, had high integrity, wanted to do the right thing. You might not always agree with them, but they weren't unethical, immoral actors. Um, you know, I do think that venture-backed startups present some challenges to ethical behavior and can be that can be exploited when the founders or executives lose that moral compass. Um, A big one is, you know, in most corporate structures, the board of directors is there for governance and oversight. Their job is to, you know, audit the books and, 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 you know, ask hard questions of the executives and the CEO. Um, One of the inherent conflicts of interest that frequently happens in early stage companies is the venture investors who, in effect, own the company in most cases, um, are also board members. And so that can create, doesn't always, but can create a sort of conflict of interest where the board may not quite flex its fiduciary responsibility as much as they would if they were independent third-party board members. Why? Of course, because they have a vested interest in that company doing well. Um, and in fact, you know, I've seen over the course of my career 
an increased tendency, as I guess I'd say, for um, venture investors in earlier rounds to really become the salesman for later rounds uh, and and later investors, particularly, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s with the dot-com bubble, um, the way that companies got liquidity, as we called it in Silicon Valley, where in other words, their private stock is now public and they can sell it, is they'd go, the company would have an IPO. Um, that's less common now. Many, many companies, even with huge private valuations, stay private so that they can avoid um, the disclosure requirements of a public company. And so that's where I think you see um, a little bit of willingness to, um, you know, I'll say put a positive spin on on things, and that can, that can sometimes tip into, you know, unethical behavior. You know, as we certainly saw um, in some of those examples we touched on, FTX, Theranos, others. Mike, you were an amazing guest for this podcast. I thank you for appearing on Apollo Papyrus. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I hope your listeners enjoyed it. And um, my new book is uh, comes out in April. It's available for pre-order on Amazon and uh, any other. I always encourage folks to order through their local bookstore or it should be on their local bookstores uh, website, at least for pre-order. And um, uh, and then, of course, you can find out more about me at MikeTrig.com. It was wonderful to interview Mike, and I wish him well with this upcoming book. I'll also mention that I'm writing a tech fiction novel of my own with the working title of Reinventing Silicon. This is Aaron Apollo Camp reminding y'all to write and read your passion. Bye for now. Remember to subscribe to the Apollo Papyrus YouTube channel at www.youtube.com forward slash at Apollo Papyrus and the Apollo Papyrus Substack newsletter at apollopapyrus.substack.com. Y'all can visit the Apollo Papyrus website at camparinapollo.witsite.com forward slash Apollo Papyrus and follow Apollo Papyrus on threads, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr at Apollo Papyrus. Copy Copyright 2024, Aaron Apollo Camp, all rights reserved. This podcast episode is intended for the private listening of our audience. Any reuse or retransmission of this episode without the express written consent of the podcast host is prohibited, except under fair use guidelines. Royalty-free music and sound effects obtained from https colon forward slash forward slash www.zapsplat.com.